Well, hello there, guys and gals. Welcome to Outback with Jack, episode 3042, I believe, that we're up to today. And, uh, yeah, it is 3046. What's wrong with me? I'm missing, like, four episodes in there. 3046. We got a bunch to talk about today. I'm going to move probably faster than you're typically accustomed to moving. Uh, I did it again where I went out into social media and said, hey, what do you guys want to hear about on Outback with Jack? I didn't specifically say no government crap, no political crap, no war crap. And guess what? I didn't have to because none of it came up again. Ton of variety, ton of response, more than I can do. And I kind of feel guilty when I do this, leaving answers out. So what I did is I kind of bounced around the different platforms to try to not favor one too much and take the things not only that I thought were great to talk about, but mostly things that I thought I could answer really quickly Few not so much. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to move a little faster than normal today. And uh, so if something I talk about really really interests you, and you're like, hey, I would like to hear like even maybe a whole show on that. Remember, you can always get emails to me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com. TSPC in the subject line, then whatever you want, idea for Jack, article for Jack, whatever, and that will make sure I at least read it. It doesn't mean I'm gonna answer it. I might. It doesn't mean I'm going to talk about it on the air. I might, but I will at least, it'll get through the screening process. If it ends up in spam hell, it'll get pulled out. It'll go into a special folder and it'll get set up. So at a certain time of the day, I review all of those emails that come in like that. Sometimes you get a three word response. It's actually an answer. Sometimes you get a more detailed response. Sometimes I don't have time. I do the best I can for everybody. I hope uh, that, that that's clear. Anyway, Again, episode 3046 today, so we've been doing this a while. For those that are new, that's uh, 14 years. We've covered pretty much everything on self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, liberty in those 14 years. We won the Podcast of the Year Award a couple times. And uh, so if you are new here and this is not exactly what you're looking for today, get on over to the survivalpodcast.com and use the search function or the tag cloud, and you can find something about anything. All right, so... Let's start off with, I've heard from a lot of you guys that still use Apple Podcasts to listen to podcasts, that TSPC has not updated an Apple Podcast since Tuesday. So my show with Justin is not showing up, and my show yesterday that was an expert counsel show is not showing up. I'm aware of it. You're right. It is happening, and I don't know why. I don't think it's something malicious from Apple, not that they wouldn't, but I don't think they did because... The entire body of content, I I keep 300 items in the feed uh, so that I don't break things by putting 3,000 items in the feed. Uh, So my most recent 300 episodes should be up there. The most recent 298 minus the last two are there. So I really don't know what's going on, and maybe someone can come up with, I don't know if there's a way to kind of ping Apple to kind of create like a, a, a reset or something with them. I know this has happened before. It's usually resolved on its own. But usually when it's happened before and resolved on its own, it's not just been me. You know, when I check into it, there's tons of people saying it's happening. It's some, like back in early 2021, it happened. It was happening to everybody, so I didn't do anything, and it it got fixed. I don't know. It is happening. But I will tell you this. If you are an audio listener, 
and you're like, hey, man, what's going on? What do I do? If you go to the survivalpodcast.com and click subscribe, we are on literally every podcasting platform app that I can find. And there's plenty listed there, and there's plenty we're on that I have not found that I'm on yet. Like, I'm on tons of platforms. I don't even know how I got there, but I'm on there. Uh, but, like, big ones like Spotify and Stitcher, we're on there, and we're updating. So I don't know what the problem is. Anybody that's any suggestions, uh, best to email me. Uh, maybe some of you guys are a little more technical than me can help out. I always uh, appreciate it when you guys help out. Uh, but I try not to lean on people too much. I, I don't think maybe it's right of me to uh, expect people to work for free. I don't work for free. Uh, none of us can afford to long term. But, you know, this is one of those things that's disruptive. So maybe you guys can help. Let's go on to all the stuff from you guys um, about subjects you wanted to hear about today. Again, very fast moving show today. Lots of freaking variety. I'm not even going to go down the list like I usually do and say, this is what we're going to talk about today and then hit it because there's too much. Most of this I'm going to spend one to two minutes on. So Anthony on MeWe said he wanted to talk about getting different survival groups to work together instead of seeing each other as independent. And he mentioned a group or two by name and I guess leaders by name. And I don't know who those people are. And I don't mean this in any way derogatory toward those people or toward Anthony, but I don't give a fuck. I don't care, and I don't know that you should either. I don't know that any of us should care about trying to create some kind of dynamic, united group of all the online prepper groups, because this seems to be an online phenomenon that Anthony is talking about. There's a couple reasons why. Number one, I'm a voluntarist. I believe that all relationships should be voluntary, and I think it's good that we have choice. So it's almost like saying, how can we get everybody that drinks you know, Coca-Cola, soda pop, whatever you want to call it, like, in Texas, everything's a Coke, even if it's a Dr. Pepper, right? I don't drink any of that shit, and I don't want to. But how, Okay, well, fine, but what about everybody that drinks? How do we get everybody to drink RC or Coca-Cola? I don't think that should be the thing. I think people should pick who they want to be with. And if they actually are picking fights with each other, I have the same rules for groups that I don't know picking fights with each other that I do for foreign wars. Stay the hell out of it. It's not your business. Don't worry about it. And, and what you need to really realize with a lot of these online prepper groups, a lot of these people are not preppers. They like the idea of prepping. They like to talk about prepping. They don't actually prep. And this is why when a disaster hits, they all freak the fuck out. This is why when COVID hit, they were all running around scrambling and had no idea what to do. And if they had a basic pantry of 90 days set up, they would have pro and, and a, fr a few extra jumbo packs of toilet paper in the attic then they probably wouldn't have freaked out. And now they're freaking about World War III, and most of them are too young to even remember the actual Cold War. And I don't know that we need to put our energy into that. I think people need to affiliate with who they want to affiliate with. And if they want to affiliate with multiple groups, that's fine. But nothing will replace your actual network. Being in a giant network of 50,000 or 100,000 or 200,000 preppers that mostly don't prep, that you don't actually know other than by online handles, doesn't do you a lot of good. Having a solid network with your neighbors, even if they're not preppers, where you guys can rely on each other is far more valuable. So I just don't care about this topic, but I think a lot of people do, and I wanted to put a different perspective on it. I could say more, but let's move on. Uh, Coleman on MeWe, I'm going to do a few Bitcoin uh, ones in a row here, and then we're going to come off of that. 
Coleman on MeWe says, is the traditional four-year cycle based on having, having dead, partly dead, or what? So for those that aren't familiar with the Bitcoin halving cycle, approximately every four years, the total amount of Bitcoin being produced cuts in half. And we're going to use round numbers here uh, that, that have no basis in reality just to make a point. Let's say that in the beginning, the first cycle, you were producing a thousand Bitcoin per cycle. Four years later, you'd have a halving cycle and go to 500. Another four years, you'd go to 250. That could be a day, a quarter, annually, whatever, right? It's just the emissions rate. So every four years, approximately, not exactly, the total number of Bitcoin that come out at the end cuts in half. This means that Bitcoin was very, very inflationary early and has transitioned into a deflationary uh, monetary asset, right? That there's not that much new Bitcoin being produced. The last Bitcoin is going to be produced in something like 2140 or something. I don't know. It's we'll all be dead. So we don't really need to worry about that. We have a question following that talks about that. And the reason that Anthony is asking, no, Coleman is asking this question is that so much institutional money has poured in. This having cycle generally has been Bitcoin makes a big run up. It drops back down, but not to where it started. It does lackluster. So this happens in about a two year after the having cycle. You have a peak, then you have a drop. Then you have a lackluster performance, and then the ha next having comes and you get another run-up, and you get this kind of stair-step stock-to-flow model of Bitcoin always crashing, but also in time always going up significantly. And with all the institutional money that's come in, has that having cycle been broken? I would say it's partially broken. I'd say Bitcoin is doing the exact same pattern with less pull-down right now. So, in other words, the dips are shorter and shallower than they were in the past. And that has to do with so much money being held and retail trading, um, retail trading having less impact. When you have people like Michael Saylor going in and buying, you know, 30 million, 40 million, 50 million Bitcoin in a single dip buy. When you have nations like El Salvador buying $5 million in a single dip buy. When you have institutions who are saying they don't like Bitcoin, they have nothing to do with Bitcoin, but we know the sons of bitches are actually buying, you know, 500, 1,000 Bitcoin at a pop or more. As that Bitcoin comes out, the halving cycle has not no impact, but it has less impact. So I think the days of the huge drops are gone. The other side of that is the huge run-ups in the short term are probably gone. So you're going to see a lot less And we didn't hit our 100K, which everybody thought we were, including me, last year. That's where the stock-to-flow model said we should have gone. Is it broken? No, we're still in the, the bands. So, you know, when you see a hurricane coming and they have, like, a line and they say it's going to smack Tampa, but then they have bands of, 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 like, kind of certainty, like a cone that says it's going to be somewhere in here. The stock-to-flow model is dead on with that right now. It may fall out of those bands a little bit or go above them a little bit time to time, But my rule is I buy Bitcoin all the time, and when it comes out of that band, then I really buy because I know that is going to be very, very short term, at least historically. It doesn't mean uh, that it will always be that way. Those of you with comments or questions for me, a quick reminder here that are watching the live stream, 
if you put them in all caps, at least the first couple words, I will star them. And we might, I'm not guaranteeing anything about getting to them today, because again, this is a deep one. Um, next, I want to talk about getting Bitcoin the hell off the exchanges, which I keep telling you to do, but many of you seem to think is something only magic people or highly technical people can do. I'm not talking down to you. I know it's scary the first time you do it. I can remember all the way back in 2014 when I used to use the Jack's wallet, which I no longer recommend. If you're listening to podcasts of mine from five years ago and I'm saying get the Jack's wallet, don't do that. Their support has gone to shit. If you're in Jack's, I recommend getting out of Jack's and moving over. I'm not going to tell you how to do that today. We're going to stick to one thing. You're stuck on an exchange like Coinbase or any other one, and you and I'm telling you to put your money in a, your Bitcoin money in a wallet, and you don't really understand how to do that. I'm about to pull up on screen, so those of you on audio only, the next minute or two maybe not quite as guiding as I wanted to. So you may want to look up the video version for this section if what I'm saying is unclear. Those of you who have done this, you're going to be like, this is boring. If you're watching the archive, feel free to skip ahead a couple minutes. Anyway, let's go and add this. This is from a presentation that I did at my fall workshop right here on my farm. And don't worry so much about the fact that it says Bitcoin is not expensive to send. Um, however, it is true that it's not expensive to send. And that was kind of the point of this. But it was also to show people how to actually get Bitcoin off an exchange onto the Exos wallet. This is an Exodus wallet that I set up because I don't want to disclose my actual holdings. I hold in a combination with Exodus and a Trezor hardware wallet. So I can see all my money, but only a small amount of it can actually be moved around with Exodus without the Trezor. Got it? I hope so. Because this doesn't matter. All I'm trying to do is most of you that are worried about this, you have like 500 bucks. And I'm saying get it off the exchange. This is how you do it. Open your Exodus wallet. You're going to click right where the arrow is. It's going to click on the word receive. Really simple. Make sure you go to the asset you want to receive. Don't try to receive Bitcoin into a Bitcoin cash address. Don't try to receive Cosmos into an Algorand address. Click on receive. Next step. Once you do that, it's going to bring up a screen that looks like this. Again, I've obfuscated the address because I don't want to disclose anything about my actual addresses. Any more than I have to to do this anyway. When you do that, you're going to get a QR code that you could scan. Let's skip that. We're doing this all manual on a computer today. We click copy. That's going to copy this address to your clipboard. After you do that, go to your Coinbase account. Click on send receive. You can see I have like 96 bucks in there. That's probably all affiliate referral commissions from referring you guys to Coinbase. I doubt that's any that I bought on Coinbase directly myself. So I click on send receive. Real simple. Nothing about this is any different than any other website you guys use every day. Okay, now you determine the amount you want to send. You put in the address that you just copied, okay, and you click on continue. Again, this is not difficult. Once you do that, it will say you're sending this much money to this address. You're doing it with Bitcoin. Basically, are you sure you want to do this? You click, yes, I am, send now. When you do that, you're going to get a text message with a secret code. This is to make sure that nobody can steal your Bitcoin or whatever thing else you're saying. So nobody can hack your account. They would have to have your account plush access to your text messages to be able to do this. This is for your security. You're going to take the code they send you and put it right here where they ask you to do it in Coinbase. On the next slide, that's it. You've done it. Soon you will see your Bitcoin or whatever show up in your Exodus wallet. 
And I'll just go ahead and tell you guys here how I how I look at this is this expensive to send thing is being ridiculous. I sent to on that transaction point zero zero two nine five zero two Bitcoin, and I received point zero zero two zero nine two nine five. Uh, the cost in Bitcoin was a bunch of zeros, 207. <laughs> and then, uh, the Bitcoin price at the time was $45,944. My cost for that transaction was nine cents. So it was nine cents to send $96. Uh, that's pretty low in my, it's less than PayPal or Venmo or any of this other crap. Uh, transaction post time was in two minutes. That means two minutes after I did it, Exodus went chime and said, hello, Bitcoin is on the way. And the transaction finalized in 20 minutes. So I knew it was there in two, and it finalized in 20. Total transactions in this whole thing, right? So your one little tiny transaction goes into a much larger block. Uh, there were 7.9995 Bitcoin sent in that block. The fee to all the miners, you can look this up on the blockchain, uh, was about $5.39. So at this particular moment in time, it took $5 to send over 300,000. And, um, so that's when I say it's not expensive and it's also not hard. That's something I probably should have done a long time ago on the podcast right there, but it's difficult because my largest portion of my audience is audio. So for those of you on audio, I hope that made some sense. If it didn't come look this up and I will probably break that out or I might redo it a little slower. And put it out as a standalone if you think uh, that would be uh, helpful. Moving on, again, Bitcoin questions. We'll knock those out so we can go on to other things. What keeps Bitcoin going after the last Bitcoin is mine? That came from Kennedy on Instagram. And here we go one more time with a screen share. And I did this myself. I simply grabbed Excel. I looked at the current block reward of 6.25, the estimate of a half out every 48 months, dropped that in and went out to the year 2080 and then said, what does this mean for mining rewards based on different Bitcoin prices? So if we were in the year 2048 and Bitcoin was at, let me make sure I get this right, $50,000, a block reward would still be $2,400. Uh, right now at $50,000, a block reward is about 312000 It's still a significant financial incentive. But who thinks that in the year 20, 2048 or 20, whatever I was at, uh, 20, let's say 2052, we're going to be at, uh, $50,000 Bitcoin. I don't. I think that's an insanely low number. If we were to just move it up to Bitcoin being at 250000 you'd be at $6,100 for a reward. I think you're more in the range of $2 million by then, at least minimum, and you're looking at $48,000 in financial incentives, and this is only block rewards. It doesn't take into account the fees. Um, I'll probably make this little PDF available, but since it was something I just churned out in Excel in a matter of about 10 minutes using some uh, formulas to make everything autofill, I'm not 100% in these numbers, but they're close. They're in the ballpark. The reality is, um, the reality is, it's 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 not important to us. By the time this even becomes an issue that needs to be solved, we're going to be dead. 
we're going to be dead. Like the last bit, there's not a, a living person, the baby that was born yesterday, unless some miracle of science creates life expectancies of a well past 100 years will not be alive when the last Bitcoin is mined. And even though it's inexpensive to send Bitcoin, there are fees. And the higher the cost of Bitcoin, the more that fee goes up for the miners participating. We are in the infancy of Bitcoin. And I think it's really important that we begin to understand that and stop looking at Bitcoin as something that we really should already under, like, like it's, it's mature, right? It might be mature as a technology at the layer one. In other words, it's as Bitcoin in of itself, it's kind of locked. It is what it is. All the things that can interact with it. That's, that's the exciting part. And so when we start looking at how many things we can do with Bitcoin, there's going to be incentives and there's going to be a market solution. But again, looking out 50 years, even being pretty conservative with Bitcoin pricing, there's plenty of money in straight mining for block rewards. It's, it's not an issue. And there you go. Next up, building a side business with berry bushes, tree grafting, garden plants, etc. Mike on MeWe. This is, uh, really kind of doves tails into another question here. So when I get to it, I'm just going to say I already covered it as I think about this and try to move quicker through this. So Mike is looking to, to do this. And I don't know if he's on a farm. I have another question here about monetizing farms. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Uh, of course, this, yeah, making a small farm profitable that's currently selling eggs, work full time, and they raise sheep for money right now. And that's by TVC podcast on Twitter. These are really the same question. You know, Mike could be in a suburban neighborhood that can put in a small backyard nursery And the other party could be, I think they're on like eight acres or something like that. And they have a lot more land and a lot more to work with. And they are looking more as a farm business, uh, even though they work full time. And then Mike is looking more of a plant-based business. It's the same thing. And all businesses are the same. We're going to actually talk about snakes later today and them as a hobby business. And it's still the same thing. What you have to do when you are not a farmer or a rancher by trade and you don't have formal training and you don't have the full time to sit down and put a hundred percent of your life into this or go out and maybe apprentice with somebody like a Greg Judy or a Joel South and to really learn the trade. You're just working with what you have. That's fine. But what happens is if you try to do a bunch of things, you lose your ass every time, all the time, every time. In fact, it is the case that you might do 10 things and one of them works really well You won't even know it's working well because you're running around like a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest and you're losing money, but you have money coming in. So you feel like you're onto something. So then you just work harder on the treadmill and you're working harder on the 90% that's unproductive and you don't even recognize the 10% that is. So the goal in any of these situations, do a thing till it is profitable. My gut is the gentleman selling the eggs, they're probably not profitable. And if I said to you, what is the cost of an egg, you wouldn't know. And you can't know if you're profitable until you can get that granular. My cost per cost of goods sold per a carton of dozen eggs is X, including my value on my labor. And so eggs are traditionally a great thing to bring a customer in, especially something like farm fresh, soy free eggs. There are people that 
they don't care if they're duck or chicken, boy, but they want soy free. They, they found that out and get good at marketing to the point where at least you're paying for your feed on your birds. Now you have customers. Now pick another thing, do it well enough and market it to your customers and determine if it's profitable. And if it's never, and if you get into it and it's almost profitable, then fine tune it. Can you make it profitable? And the minute the answer is no or not profitable enough to be worth my time, you kill it like a rooster that spurred you in the leg. So you tried to keep an extra rooster. You went out to your coop. Rooster gets down and plants two big spurs in your calf. How do I fix the rooster? As Cocovin in a crock pot. That's how you fix that rooster. You hang him from a tree. You cut his neck. You bleed him into a bucket. You put his blood into the compost of your soil. And you make Cocovin. When you have a business unit that you've determined is not going to be profitable, is sucking your time, and you kill it. You kill it dead like that rooster. You roast the leftovers. You either sell it off or you use it for yourself. Now you try another thing. And you keep trying another thing until it is profitable. And you'll find most farm-type, homestead-type businesses, you'll have to do four or five things to make enough income that at least one partner can be home and do that. And it'll be worth doing that. So you have to be ruthless in deciding this. So back to Mike, who wants to do bushes and berries and trees, like get a few different varieties, learn how to propagate them for yourself and plant them. Determine the ones that are the coolest and easiest for you to propagate, make 50 of them, put them on next door and sell them at cost. Okay. And see if you can sell them at cost that way. If you can't, you're going to have to look at this and see, how do I do this differently? You can put up a website and sell them online. You can sell them on eBay and Etsy. Tons of people do. Try that as well. When you're selling them online, don't sell them at cost. Sell them at at least 50% over cost, but you got to know your cost. Why would I say sell your first 50 at cost to neighbors and friends? To know them. To put them on the customer list. To say, hey, I just want some feedback on this. And be, be clear, I'm selling these at cost. Sell them a dollar over cost and say it's cost. You know why? You won't be lying because you don't know what the fuck you're doing and your estimate of your cost is going to be low anyway. Look at what they sell for at the box stores. At Take a dollar off what they sell for at the box stores. Say it's cost. It probably is because you don't know what you're doing yet. Sell those. Build a customer base. Everybody that buys. You don't get to buy from me if I don't get your phone number and your email address or at least one. You're not allowed. I won't let you. You cannot buy from me unless I know who you are and how to tell you when I have more. And I'm, I literally mean that. Like, if I'm trying to build, a, if I'm selling potato slips or something to make a few bucks, and I don't care about selling again, I'll sell. But if I'm selling something to somebody, you're going to give me a way to contact you in your name. Because next year when I have a lot more, I want to go back first to those people. That's why I'm willing to go low on that first round of sales. If that's Bushes, trees, plants, vines, you do that. If that's, I'm, right now I'm selling eggs, but I plan on doing greens, maybe microgreens or baby greens in some side of hydro or aquaponic system next, I want to be able to sell to those same people. And you stack onto it. You do that with a farm and you do that with a plant business. You do that with any business, especially these bootstrapped, small, part-time side hustles. It's literally the only way to phase yourself into it. And make content, make videos, 
post pictures every freaking day. You're going to have to touch your business every day, take a picture, take a 30-second video, post it everywhere you can. So as you start to get customers, you can say, hey, if you want to see what we do, here's my Instagram or here's my freaking Odyssey channel or here's my YouTube channel. It's not, it's not can I get 10 million subscribers. It's can my people that I'm already dealing with look at what I'm doing because you're going to get this. Can I tour your homestead? And you're like, I, I'm telling you, you don't have time for that shit. I don't say yes to that very often. And I got more time than most of you. It's hard. And people always want to do it at the worst time because in their head, well, that's that's what you do. So you're always there. No, it's not what you do. You're not always there. So there you go. I, I'm going longer on that than I could because I care so much about you guys and your businesses. Okay. Here's another question. Andrew on me, we said, he's having trouble training his dog that is fence-fighting chickens and terrorizing them. I call it whenever dogs run up and down a fence, whether it's two other dogs, whether somebody's walking down the street and they chase them all the way down, or like my dog, Charlie, the one thing I haven't even bothered to break him from because there's no reason, any big truck with a low boy, he chases it down the fence. That's his exercise. He's allowed to do that. Uh, and he is a perimeter dog. So I, I, if I, he was not a perimeter dog, I would break him from that. I've used very similar training with him to break him from up and down the fence with the little chihuahua next to us. Because if he ever goes through that fence, that dog is dead in a heartbeat. What um, Andrew has going on is he has chickens, and they're in a coop and run scenario. So the dog can't kill the chickens. This is like a two-year-old rescue dog. So he didn't get a pup to work with from the beginning. He lets the dog out, and the dog runs back and forth and fence fights the chickens, and the chickens get all upset because they don't know that they're safe because they're chickens. They have a little literal half a pea brain. That's how big it is. And so they're terrified that this monster's trying to eat them. And somebody said, Jack said it's not ideal, but it's really good to use an electric training collar for that. And I already responded to that comment and said I did not say it's not ideal. I, in fact, said it is the ideal tool to do it with. I, what I said is there's a lot of people in their minds and their hearts that it wouldn't be ideal for because you're going to hurt the dog. You're not going to hurt the dog that bad. And the reason I recommend a fairly expensive training collar, it's called Dogtra is the brand. And I will look at some lower cost ones, but it's very important to me. It's very important to me that when you use something that causes pain to an animal, that you use the minimum threshold of pain necessary and you use a product that you can trust if you set it to 18 and it goes up like 160 it's 18 and if it, 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 so you've got to use any tool right have you ever gone to a fair and some guy's sitting there chopping shit with a magic chopper you buy it you go home you can't do half the shit he did you don't have the skill set you give one guy a hammer a saw like that dude that went up the alone in the wilderness or whatever the guy in alaska he went in with like the metal heads of the tools, started out with nothing but the metal heads of the tools, built his own handles, and in a couple seasons built a cabin and lived there for 10 years. Not everybody that has those tools can do that. So we have to use the tool right, and we have to start with a quality tool that we can trust. And there's two ways to use an electric training collar. The dog knows that you have control, or the dog doesn't. It's a very advanced tactic. It's what I've done with my dog, Charlie. It's why I can do certain things with him that don't make any sense. I can't explain it over the Internet. I can't. That's the dog. He knows I have control of that. You want most to use for something like this is a very simple behavior break. You want the dog to have no associate with the collar and no association with you. So you want to get the collar. Turn it off. It doesn't need to be on. 
Put it on the dog. Let him wear it for a day. Take it off the dog. Leave his other collar on too. Put it on. Wear for a day. Take it off. Put it on for a day. Take it off. Do this for about a week. The last day of the week when you take it off him, charge it. Make sure it's working. Set your setting fairly low on your collar. Put the collar on the dog. Let the dog out. Do not use the collar until the dog exhibits a behavior you find objectionable. Hide. That doesn't mean you have to hide like a little kid or everything, but do not be with the dog. Let the dog go be a dog. Watch the dog. When the dog starts fence fighting the chickens, boom, boom, boom. Give him three pops. If the dog does not react, turn the setting up just a couple points. Boom, boom, boom. When you, it doesn't react. That's why I like this broad spectrum. I want the minimum place to get the attention. So you're going to, at some point, you're going to hit it. That dog's going to be like, what the hell? And don't be surprised when he goes right back to the behavior. Now, go up a couple more points. Bam, bam, bam. That dog's going to react. And that dog is going to break from that behavior. You've now got the setting. Now, go out and call the dog over. Not, hey, come here. Don't ever be amped up when you're, hey, buddy, come on over. Come on, what's, what's up? What happened? Pet him, love him, play on him, right? Rub his belly. Let him go. He's probably at this point like, hey, that was weird. I wonder why that happened. And then he's going to go right back to fence fighting or whatever behavior you're trying to break. You got the number now. You're not overusing it. Bam, bam, bam. That looks like, oh. And the canine brain is more advanced than the chicken brain. So it starts to say, oh, wait a minute. This thing, this maybe they're lightning birds. Maybe they're shooting electricity at me. Maybe they're dangerous. Maybe I don't need. Now, if the dog approaches the chickens and he is not aggressive, don't do anything. You don't want the dog afraid of the chicken. You want the dog to be like, approaching the chicken like this doesn't hurt. Approaching the chicken like this hurts. So I don't need to do that anymore. Learn dog language. And when the dog looks like he's approaching the birds with an intention, Use the vibrate. Buzz, buzz, buzz. Doesn't hurt. Just, just, oh, wait a minute. Now I remember what happens when I do this. It will probably take you two to three days of doing this, and you will break the behavior 95% of the time. This is where we need to stay on it. It will take a few bit of times of reinforcement training, and the dog will cease the behavior, and he will never associate you with the behavior. He will associate with the chickens and the action. More complicated. Can't do in a quick, uh, a quick podcast. I just can't do it. I'm sorry. Uh, next, this is an interesting one. Buying welding equipment for future skill building, but they can't start for six months and they're worried about supply. This came from K on Miwi. Um, this is one of those things where there's a real potential for the following to happen. I know I want to learn to weld. Do you? Do you really? Or is it like you like the idea of learning how to weld? I think it's a great skill. I think you should learn it if you're interested in it this much. So then we go out and we buy very expensive welding equipment and we put it away somewhere. So now we have it. So we're going to have time to learn how to weld in six months. And then six months of life goes on. And next thing you know, you have very expensive welding equipment and you don't use it. And you think maybe I should sell it. And maybe you're right. Maybe the price, maybe you can actually sell it for more than you paid for it, but you don't sell it. And eventually you end up with a whole bunch of stuff like that. And they're sitting there so that one day you'll use them. And they never get used. 
And now your money is tied up in something that you're not using. And therefore, your opportunity capital has been reduced. So something comes along and you're thinking, I'd like to buy that. Maybe I should sell the welding equipment to buy that thing. And by the time you liquidate the welding equipment, because it's not something that's liquid like a stock or cash or a mutual fund or Bitcoin, you finally sold it, but the opportunity's passed. Right. And it's okay to put money into things, especially welding equipment. I think it's a good investment. But investing today because you might use it in the future and might not be able to get it in the future is probably not the best thing, especially if the entire agenda here is what? Learning the skill. Okay, I would say you probably can learn the skill right now. You can probably find a maker space within 50 miles of where you live that has welding equipment. You can probably go down there and for the price of a gym membership, become a member of the maker space and even have somebody stand beside you and tell you how to do it because people at those places love to teach. Or there's probably some other way that you can pick up that skill set, and I don't know that you even need equipment to pick the skill set up. And once you pick the skill set up, then you can determine whether or not this is something you're really passionate about and something that's really going to work out well for you, and then you'll be able to, to, to take that forward. Right? That's, that's my advice, and it would be the same if the question was, I'm thinking about getting into blacksmithing. I probably wouldn't say, you know, hey, you know, what a really good thing to do would be is to go out and uh, go to a makerspace. I don't think there's a lot of blacksmiths in makerspaces, but I would say something like maybe you should post on like next door and local places and stuff like that and say, hey, I'm really looking to learn about blacksmithing. Does anybody do it or does anybody know anybody that does? And I guarantee you, you reach out to a blacksmith and say, I just kind of want to learn about how to do it. They're probably going to say, come on over. I'm going to be working next fr- next Saturday in the backyard and forging some stuff and go in and Learn to do that. The other thing that you can do is, you know, is there any place around you that actually hires people at the apprentice level? And, you know, you might not get really high end training, you know, if it's not like a full time union program or something. But, you know, you're talking about the basics of understanding. You might even be able to look and find like a local metal shop. And if you call call them up and say, hey, I'm looking at learning welding. Uh, what would you charge me to uh, on a slow day? Put me with one of your good welders. And weld some stuff up. Maybe you would say, hey, I actually want this product. And what I'm willing to do is tell you what I want. You quote me a price on it. We'll, we'll double the price. And we'll do it on a day that you're slow. I want to come in and learn how to do it with one of your guys. You know what they're going to say? Come on down. Now, if you call, you know, Acme Joe Spooty's Giant International Corporation of Welding Shop Metal Services, they're probably not going to do that. But if you, you reach out to a local small company, they'll probably do that. And again, welding is not the issue here. It's a skill set and buying the thing for the skill set. It's a reverse toolbox fallacy, right? The toolbox fallacy is I want to do the thing, but I can't do the thing till I have the stuff. So one day I'll have the stuff and then I can do the thing. This is I'm going to buy the thing because I'm going to do the thing one day. I'm guilty of this like crazy. I have so much stuff that I haven't used yet because I don't have the time. And, I, and I'm starting to realize some of the things I'm not going to have the time. I need to pay other people to do them and some of the things I really like to do. Right. So that's how you you approach this situation. I would not buy something for future skill building today because I'm afraid I can't get it tomorrow. I guarantee you, you go out and look for welding equipment right now. There's plenty of people that are trying to sell it used I also have an episode I did with a guy on welding that I think would be very beneficial, and I'm going to make a note right now so that I don't forget welding to include a link to that episode in the show notes for you. 
Moving on, benefits for international listeners who join the Member Support Brigade. This came from I.G. Baker on Float. He said he's thinking about it. Uh, you can join the Members Brigade for right now for 35 bucks. You can look through the, the vendors there. If they ship internationally or if it's a soft product, it doesn't matter. The benefit would apply on the discount. A lot of our physical product vendors do not ship internationally or they only ship to Canada. Those benefits would not be available to you. I don't want to, I don't want to sound arrogant here. Okay. I don't. And I don't want to sound unappreciative. But for an annual membership fee of $35, if you're thinking about it, I don't know that it's really right for you. It's 35 bucks. It's at 50, which is the full price. It's 18 cents an episode. There is some stuff there beyond discounts. I don't, I've never heard a lot about it from people. There's some, there's some, uh, documents and there's some stuff that's even publicly available, but I put it in a place for you to find. I guess you would have to ask other users that have accounts what their primary motivation is for staying customers. What I can tell you is, and most customers are to be, are domestic to be fair, is that my average customer, um, length of, of retention after doing this for 14 years is seven years. And that's not counting lifetime members because they skew things. And I don't sell lifetime memberships very often. If I just look at what is the average length of time a customer stays once they become a member, it's seven years. So there's value there. But, I mean, primarily you're supporting the show. And it's just it's a matter of fact that I have primarily a domestic U.S. audience. Um and, you know, a lot of them don't ship to Australia or New Zealand or England or what have you. And I don't have enough reach in those markets to get vendors in those markets. And if somebody from that market wants to be a vendor, I'm open to it. But I also feel like it doesn't really serve the majority. And then maybe people in those other markets should put together similar programs. It won't upset me at all. But the primary reason that you join MSB, Member Support Brigade, is to support the show that you listen to. That's why and at 35 bucks for a year. I don't know, man. If you need to think about it again, I'm not insulted by that. I'm just like, it's 35 bucks. The same person thinking about it probably buys a latte for $5. So I don't know, man. Uh, you can, again, you can go through because if I say, well, these vendors will, you know, either it doesn't matter or they do ship internationally. I don't know which ones you would value. I, I really don't. Uh, but there are some stuff that's, you know, soft product or anything or, or, you know, you can download it. So it doesn't matter. It's borderless. Uh, next up. Thoughts on snakes on the homestead. This came uh, breeding care, diet, et cetera. And hot versus cold. Hot versus cold is venomous versus non-venomous. This came from Smurf It Up Show on Twitter. I know that guy personally. He's been here a few times. Uh, cool dude. This is going to like a lot of what I said about a. Uh, he's taking this more of like, hey, I like reptiles. I could do a business on the homestead. This isn't, hey, I have a lot of copperheads or rattlesnakes around here, so I want to acquire a whole bunch of king snakes and let them go on my homestead. Not a bad idea, by the way. But it's the same question, but it's different. Because now we're dealing with a living organism that requires husbandry, and most people think, I'm going to go buy the most expensive snakes in the world, and I'm going to breed them. Breeding reptiles is a skill. Getting baby snakes to take their first meal is a skill. Marketing the baby snakes to other people is a skill. Shipping a snake so it doesn't die is a skill. 
You see where I'm going with this. Like, it's the same but different, man, all over again. I'm going to start out with, because he asked about venomous, hots versus, you know, cools or colds. Um, if you have to ask, don't. Don't mess with, I don't care if they're out in the back 40. I don't care if you bought it from a guy in Pennsylvania who shipped it to you in a box. If it has fangs and it can inject venom and it can make you really, really injured, sick, and or dead, and you have to ask, you don't need to touch it. You don't need to touch it at all in any way. You don't need to touch it. And I don't know what we are all one is getting at there, but it better get knocked off or he's going to, you know what? I don't know that. I don't like that. I could be wrong. You are in a time out because it sounds like you're being nasty there. If I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Anyway, um, you, you don't need to be messing with venomous snakes. There is a book from a, a mentor of mine who I never met because he was dead by the time I read it. His name was Carl Caulfield. It is called The Keeper in the Kept. It is something I've, even though it's older than dirt, literally, it is something that I think every aspiring young herpetologist, snake breeder, et cetera, should read. Uh, Carl ran the Staten Island Zoo's reptile exhibit uh, with no college education whatsoever. He built the first collection of every rattlesnake in North America that was ever in uh, that ever existed, and somebody could go look and see all the rattlesnakes in North America. Uh, he was an amazing man, and he has a whole section on dealing with venomous reptiles. And his primary advice, there is no need for you to ever touch a venomous snake, even if you need to work with it and, and do things with it and collect it. And he goes through exactly how you do that and never put your hands on it. Now, if you get into dealing with them and you're dealing with things like stuck sheds and you're dealing with things like milking because uh, you're doing venom collection off totally different world from what we're talking about here at that point you are going to have to put your hands on a venomous snake i have removed many venomous snakes for people that i didn't want to end up dead that i had the time to take somewhere else i have never put my hand on the snake ever and i've never had to and it's never impeded my ability to capture that animal if you don't understand what i'm saying if you have not been mentored by somebody that knows how to do this properly don't do it Forget it. We're going to throw that away for this question. Okay. If you want to be in the hobby business of snakes, the first thing you do is you get a snake that is a good marketable critter and you learn how to take care of it. There's two sides to taking care of snakes. There's husbandry and there's handling. Husbandry is where it lives, what it eats, making sure that you clean the poop. If it's a little corn snake, it's a little poop. By the way, if it's a great big boa, it's a great big freaking that big around freaking poop that's about that long for those that are on the video. And it's nasty. And you, you learn and you decide, am I really going to want a hundred of these animals pooping the size of a rabbit every day in my garage or wherever you're going to keep them? Security is important. We're not even going to get a thing. You get a snake. In my opinion, if you're going to go into marketing snakes, there are all kinds of cool snakes. But there's a core business like the eggs or the berry plant or whatever. And here's what people buy. And buy lots of, not just one or two because they're expensive and cool, but buy lots of. They buy corn snakes. That is the number one kept snake in America. It's the number one starter snake. It's easy to keep. It's very forgiving. It's native to North America. It has a broad range of climates. You can screw a lot of stuff up and it's still going to be okay. There's a reason it's number one. And they come in all kinds of cool colors and they don't get that big. Number two, it's, it's a split. It's going to be boas 
of some sort, ball pythons, or king snakes. And those are kind of your big four, corns, kings, boas, and balls. And then other pythons, most of which get very large. Boas get big, pythons get ginormous, with some exceptions, but they're not the most popular ones. I would pick something from that list, and I would err toward the size of small and easy to decide, this isn't working. I don't want to do this. I want this thing to go away. And somebody will take it. You could even go out, if you live in a place where rat snakes, bull snakes, corn snakes, etc. live, and collect one from the wild to learn husbandry. That way, you can feel good about it, especially if you found it on your own property. I, I get Texas rat snakes out of my freaking chicken coop all summer long. Hey, you know what? This isn't working out. Go be free. You won't feel bad about it like you would if you took something that doesn't belong in our wild uh, world and put it out there. So now you can bail out. And I would learn husbandry of the animal first, and then I would determine what business model fits that. And it's I was going to talk about this, but again, I got a ton to go through today. It is way complicated. What I'm going to suggest, if you want to see somebody doing it right, go to South Mountain Reptiles, which is at cornsnakes.net. I have a link in the show notes here. And uh, go take a look at how that operation is run. They Their website looks like a 90s website, and that's because it's been around that long. The guy behind it makes a lot of money on snakes. He makes a lot of money selling his book. His book would be a great thing to start with. And the book is more about husbandry than the business. And I've met the dude personally. Uh, I would also say, you know, make time to go to one of the big rec- reptile shows. Uh, in fact, there's probably one coming up here in Texas. I should look up. I'll look that up. It's like the North American Reptile Breeders Conference or something. ARBC, something. I'll, I'll look it up. And you can get really great deals on snakes there. And John Willis sells snakes. And John Willis doesn't breed snakes. John Willis buys a bunch of snakes really cheap by buying a bunch of snakes from a breeder who specializes in breeding. And he buys little baby snakes at the time of the year when they're throwing eggs and they're hatching. They're going to be cheap then, and then they're going to be semi-adults to adults later in the season, and they're going to be much more expensive. He takes those little baby snakes that he gets for $25 and sells them for $75. But you only do that with snakes if you love snakes. I love snakes, but not that much. I played with it. It was fun. That's not. I'm not going to make enough money. My time is more valuable than somewhere else. Always ease into things like this. Don't go all in and don't mess with the freaking venomous reptiles if you do not have proper training and mentorship. And I would also recommend you take a look at kingsnake.com's classifieds. You can see independent uh, people all over the country selling their animals. And you can watch them and see how long, like if this guy says he's got two of these snakes, And four weeks later, that ad's still up. Don't think they're really worth $150 a piece. Clearly, they're not. Nobody bought them. And watch the turnover rate. And this is where you'll learn about the thing about hots or venomous. You go to the hot section of kingsnake.com. Now, you might have some local ordinances or something like that. But in general, anybody can go there and go, gee, I want a monocle cobra. And somebody will put one in a box and send it to you. To me, that's a bit scary. I don't want restrictions on it. That's a bit scary because dumbasses that get bit go to hospitals that are not necessarily able to treat a gaboon viper bite or a freaking monocle cobra bite. Okay? So, when you know, and I've been asked, well, what's your training? Well, my training is I worked with a guy named Dave who was a friend of my father's when I was eight years old, and I learned about husbandry and care of snakes. 
And I learned about dealing with hots even back then. By the time I was like nine years old, I was learning how to handle uh, primarily pygmy and, and diamondback rattlers because that's one of the things Dave did as a side business. And I even worked as uh, like an intern volunteer uh, during one of my summers in high school for a few months at the Philadelphia Zoo. So I and, and I've, I've done this my whole life. And my advice is don't touch the thing you don't understand. And if you look up, you can dig it deep enough. You can get into the CDC's website. You can dig deep enough about all the venomous bites in the United States every year. And if we even take out handlers, because if you're handling venomous snakes every day, sooner or later, you're probably going to get bit. Um, but if you just look at what we'd call natural bites, the snakes in the wild person gets bit. It's over 90%. I don't remember the exact percentage, but over 90% of the people that are bit are young men between the age of about 15 and 35. Stupid young men. And the primary place they're bit is in the hands and lower arms. If you were bit on the hand and lower arm by a snake, there's a huge probability you touched the snake and you shouldn't have. There is the rare instance where the lady goes out and she puts her hand in the flower pot and the snake was in the flower pot. That's a young copperhead or pygmy rattler or something like that and gets bit on the hand. That does happen. It is rare, but it does happen. Most of the bites are by young, stupid, often intoxicated males who think they're freaking Conan the Barbarian or Steve Irwin and they're going to play with the snake because they saw somebody do it on TV. If you don't do that, you have an incredibly low probability of ender, ever ending up in the hospital for being bit. I have been to the hospital for being bit by a copperhead. It was a legitimate bite. I stepped over a branch. It was on the other side. It tagged me in a leg. It happens. The incidences are rare. If it happens, again, I'm going longer than I want to here, but it's a, it's a kind of passionate topic for me. Do not panic. Seek medical attention. Do not cut into the wound and suck the venom out. That does not work. It never did. I don't even know where we ever came up with it. Uh, but maybe we'll do a show in the future. I have done a show on venomous snakes, and I will add that to my list for things to add to the show notes. Okay, and I'll make sure that's in there. It's a very old one, but we'll go deeper into this if this is a topic that interests you. Uh, the vigorous man on Twitter said, what about training your dog for the shit hit the fan scenarios? Okay, you either have a well-trained protection or perimeter dog or you don't. It has nothing to do with shit at the fan. This is a I have read too many prepper porn fiction novels question. And I probably have all of James Wesley Rawls' books or somebody else's books. And I think I'm going to have a compound with a Rhodesian Ridgeback. Wow, that brain cell still remembers that from that first book by Rawls. And I don't dislike Rawls, okay? I think Rawls has done a lot of good for prepping. But I think that like you take the book and you see it as a story that teaches you about prepping versus an actual reality that you can expect or you're off in fantasy land. So you're not going to train your dog for the shit to hit the fan. In fact, it's far more important that you prepare your dog, prepare on behalf of your dog for the shit hitting the fan. In other words, can you feed your dog if you can't go to Walmart and buy kibble? That's what that's the real preparation. The dog's training to be an asset on your property is the same in peace as in wartime. This is if you're actually going to have a protection dog, I recommend you get in touch with Joel Riles and you buy one because like the venomous reptile, until you have this experience, you have no idea what you're doing. Training dogs is incredibly complex. People like myself who have worked with dogs their entire lives, I still do things that I look at that and go, I'm not going to do that again. 
My dog, Charlie, is very well trained. I will never make a dog as aggressive towards people on the outside of a gate coming in as he, I will make them aggressive. I will never make them that aggressive ever again. You will make tactical errors. If you really want a well-trained protection dog, go to a well-recognized company who specializes it. You're going to spend a lot of money because it's worth it. Or you can learn the basics of dog training, bring in a local trainer, spend a little bit of money, and train the dog in obedience commands and train the dog to, I mean, it's the easiest thing to teach a dog. You just have to be careful of how switched on you make the dog is, this fence is my perimeter. Things on the outside don't come inside unless mom or dad say it's okay. You almost don't have to do anything. And once you have one dog that knows it, you don't have to teach the next dog how to do it. The first dog will do it. And dog training is incredibly complex. And there's thousands of things a dog can be trained to do or not to do. How did we train our dogs that bad birds were bad, for instance, right? So the first thing is a dog is not going to recognize the difference between a, a Cooper's hawk or a black buzzard. Dog can't tell. Dog doesn't give a shit. It's a big flight bird flying around. Or, for instance, uh, a blue heron that comes and tries to eat my fish out of my pond. They're all great big birds that fly around that aren't part of his flock. So we took something the dog naturally hated, like a squirrel. And when he saw the squirrel and there was no danger in him chasing the squirrel at that moment, we'd go, Oh, there he is. Oh, and let him go. Right. So now that sound, oh, that becomes associated with that thing is bad. Like you're, you know, since I have no desire to break him from tracing squirrels, I like him to chase squirrels. If he catches one, he gets to eat it. That's fine. So now that's bad. So now you see the bird. Grab the dog by the head and pull. Now you have to have a dog disciplined enough. He doesn't freak out because you're showing him what to look at. Teach the dog that sometimes you will actually show him what to look at. Put something down for him to eat without him seeing it. Show him it, and he starts to associate with, hey, when the when 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 dad's hands go on my head and push my head, there's something to pay attention to. So now we got a circling buzzard. There's a lot more of those than hawks. Lift the head up. Oh, bad bird, bad bird. And then the dog instinctively knows that's a bad thing, and he'll start responding to it. And then anytime you see any large bird, oh, bad bird, and then you have this kind of like that's and it could be any sound. That's just what I use. Right. You could do the same thing. If you have a fox problem, usually you'll have fox smell. Make sure your 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 livestock are away the first time you do this. Get the dog to smell it. He's as soon as he smells fox pee, he's going to light up on it like, hey, man, that's different. What is that? Oh, oh, man, you got to get him. You got to and he'll start looking for it. But when that fox shows up, even if it's not peeing at the moment, a fox, you might not smell it. That dog's going to smell it. And, oh, that dad said, oh, when that's that. And then that dog is going to associate that the fox is bad. The fox must die, or at least it must be chased away. This is how you train a dog. Now, if you want to train a dog to attack humans, you're going to a totally different level, and your errors are magnified in cost pain and responsibility and you need professional help with that so again i would get my head out of this training the dog for shit hit the fan and get my head into accurately training the dog to perform the tasks that i wish for the dog to perform all right next up 
That's making a small farm profitable, selling eggs. We already did that. We combined it with another one. Chef Keith Snow asking me a question about food. Awesome. On Instagram, is there a right way to wash and store eggs? They're really in a wrong way. So there's our philosophy with eggs. We have some educated customers. They know that there's no need to wash an egg. And if you're going to do something with an egg that, you know, maybe like do a, like you're not going to, um, cook it because you're going to put it in some sort of like a egg drink or something like that, or you're going to make mayo out of it. And that you're concerned that when you crack the egg, it could become contaminated, that you can wash the egg before you do that. And if you're like cooking the egg scrambled or whatever, you don't even need to worry about it because the heat's going to take care of everything. And that if we don't wash the egg, um, then we don't have to, then we don't lose the protection of what's called the blem. And that nothing's going to go in the shell and damage the egg. And we can even store the egg for much longer without refrigerating it. So the best thing to do, unless the egg is nasty, and sometimes they are, don't wash them at all. Now, the government says you have to wash them if you're selling them. There's also kind of a loophole in that, at least in the state of Texas. Your mileage may vary. There are no regulations about duck eggs in Texas at all. All the regs specifically say chicken eggs. So we don't have to do anything. There's things we can't do, like we can't grade them. Uh, but even technically that, I, I think it would be hard, like, you know, grade A, grade, you know, size-wise or whatever. I think it would be very difficult for the state to make a case on that because all the regulations specifically say chicken eggs. We generally follow best practices. But this is the other side. If you're selling them, there are people that will look at an egg and it has a little bit of, you know, bird poo on it or mud or whatever else they get on them, and they'll go, Ew, I don't want that. So in general, unless we have a customer that has eggs reserved that specifically says, I don't want them washed, and we have several, we wash the eggs. How do we wash the eggs? We use hot water out of the sink. We use a little stiff brush, and we wash them till they appear clean. We set them out to dry. We candle all eggs, wash or not, to make sure there's not something wrong. Sometimes you get a blood spot or something or what's called meat, which I won't get into. But there's certain things you learn over time. Hey, that egg doesn't look right. My suggestion is when it's not obviously like we had one the other day, it was obviously old. We found it in the bedding. We thought it was new when we candled it like the yolk and the white were just one gloop. Okay, that gets thrown away. You see something in an egg, and it doesn't look quite right. Put it aside for your personal use. Mark it some way. Just put a you know a check mark on it with a Sharpie. It's not going to hurt anything. When you crack it, examine it. And say, now that I saw this thing, I know what this thing is. This is something I would or would not hand on to a customer. And sometimes Dorothy will come and say, well, what do you think? And I'm like, you know, she does all this, that side of the business. I don't. I'm like, you know better than me. You've been doing this for eight years. And she'll say, well, I'm not sure. Mark it, put it in the refrigerator. We'll see what, or just go ahead and open it. Just open it up, look at it. If it doesn't look like anything, like something toxic or something, and we don't want it right now, feed it to the dog. Scramble it up, throw it on his food. He'll eat it, you know, and it's dog food. And learn from that experience. But there's really not a wrong way to do it. You don't need egg wash solution or any of that shit. And your best practice is not to wash them. Ducks are a little more complicated. Ducks make a mess out of everything. And so if you're keeping ducks in an inside-outside arrangement and they start laying eggs outside, they'll lay in mud Etc. Now that we move to a coop model, we get much cleaner eggs. We still occasionally get one that's really nasty. If they're really nasty, we wash them and we put them aside for our 
customers that want washed eggs or we use them personally. I won't put a really nasty egg in the fridge or in a bowl with other eggs. I'll, I'll wash that or Dorothy or the kid will wash that. How hard is it to do right? My grandson who is 10 washes eggs for chores. He uses no soap or solution. He uses the brush that grandma gives him and the pretty warm water, like not all the way up, but pretty warm water out of the faucet. It's, it's not hard. Um, keeping cats, coons, etc., from using your garden as a litter box from Scott from the dock on Instagram. The only thing that I have found people, and I don't have this problem. And I also, if an animal defecates in my garden occasionally, and it doesn't actually dig up my plants when it does it, I won't know. And I won't care. And it's part of nature's cycles. If it's a regular occurrence, it's causing a problem. It's got to stop. Then I will care. I've never had this problem. We have two cats on the property. We also have two dogs. So raccoons and stuff like that does not be around here that much. Uh, and we also use really high raised beds and that probably helps as well. Um, but the product that I have seen work and I will try to find one for you. Um, and you, you know, I, I think you can use any of them that have good reviews is a motion sensing sprinkler. And has a little motion sensor on it, and you set that sprinkler pointing right at the place where the problem critter is coming from, and it runs off a battery or a solar panel or something like that, and then you hook a garden hose up to it, and you then have pressure on it, and you walk away, and along comes Mr. Kitty or Mr. Coon, and they go to do their business, and and it's kind of like the dog collar. That happens enough time, and that critter's little brain says, this is a bad place. This is a bad place. That's that's the easiest thing that you can do, and it's the only really reliable method. And if I can find the video today, let me put that on the notes as well for you guys so I don't forget when I'm done. Sprinkler cat. Okay, because there's a video where they're playing, like, uh, music and, like, I thought I thought a putty cat from uh, – from Bugs Bunny, the, the Tweety Bird, you know, I did, I did, I did saw, and the cat just gets blasted over and over again. And it's just a guy that doubled on the cat in his yard. And it, it doesn't take long to where all the cats that go in that backyard, like that backyard sucks. So that's, that's what I would do if I was having this problem. Uh, and then I have a question, last question before we go to feedback with you guys. I have some stuff starred. I've seen a few that were clearly questions for me that weren't all caps. If you don't all cap, there's a large probability I won't see it. All cap, at least your first three words, if you're going to ask a question or ask me to comment something in the uh, the comments here, either Twitch or YouTube or, or uh, Facebook, all of you guys that can see your comments aggregated in, and I will try to respond, though we're over an hour, and I have a wife and husband day planned today, so we're not going to go much longer on this. What would the U.S. look like if all power went out for an extended period of time? This is from Tommy Newell one on Instagram. My dad, I, I decided to tell you this because apparently some of you really like when I tell you stories from my childhood. And sometimes my stories are less what happened and more what I was taught and what I was told. I did not have a great family life, but I did have a reasonable relationship with, especially in my parents' level, my father. Not great, but reasonable. And we did have some pretty deep conversations. And my dad was pretty switched on to this. Uh, my grandfather more so uh, about the homesteading and gardening and everything. That's what I got from him. But a lot of the philosophy I do still derive from my dad. And my dad and I actually had this, que- this, this discussion when I was about 11 years old. 
maybe 12. We were still living in Jacksonville. So the, and Martinson says, read one second after. Yeah, I don't agree. I don't agree. We'll, we'll, I'll tell you, I, I think that again, we're back in the world of prepper porn and prepper fiction and people trying to sell books. But I'll tell you what my dad said. And it, it kind of does align with that to be fair a little bit. But my dad said, if you look around, he said, if you, if you were to turn all the lights out, Everything that people rely on to feed them, to keep them warm, to provide them everything they need would be gone. It'd be gone in a day. Half of them are just going to lay down and die. Not literally, but in practice. They won't make it 30 days. The other half of them are going to kill the ones that are laying down to die that haven't died quick enough and take whatever they have, but they're going to quickly find out it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You might extend your life by a day or three, but it's not going to help you. Most of them are going to die too. There's going to be people that simply go off. They team up together with people that know how to do things. And they're going to do their best to stay alive. And half of them are going to die. And you, you might as well ask what happens when European settlers come to thriving civilizations in North America in the 15 and 1600s and bring smallpox. What you'll have 100 years will be a remnant of hunter-gatherers. And they will never rebuild what they had. Now, we also live in a world where we know what's possible, and I think humanity would rebuild. And I think the question is another one of these fantasy prepper porn questions. The entire United States with no power for an extended period of time. And when they, this question, when I, I put extended period of time to simplify the bullet point, he means like, you know, years. You know, like, like some apocalypse TV show or something. Most people, including preppers, aren't getting out of it. That's the truth. I'll go hunt. So is everybody else. How long is that going to last? You know, another story from my past, my grandfather, who was, I, I, I have much more fond memories of my time with him than my, my parents. I'm talking about my Ukrainian grandfather on my dad's side. One day I found these rat traps. And I mean, these are rat traps you could beat somebody with, man, because back, you know, in the thirties and twenties, when these things were made, you made a rat trap, not out of the cheapest piece of scrap wood you could get. Like it was like, End cuttings of oak plank. These were oak freaking like blocks, like the size, like a little bit bigger than a typical rat trap today. And they were freaking like half inch thick oak board. And then they had a, like the spring on this man. Like you, I think you could have used a leg hold trap for freaking coons. It was such a snap. And, uh, but they all had these holes in them. And I got really interested in this and I'm like, what's the hole for? And I, you know, I, I was trapping muskrat and raccoon and stuff like that. And I was using different techniques like sliding one-way sliders for your for your muskrats and coons so they would get trapped. And then they would slide down into the water and they would get drowned. So when you went to get them, you didn't have to shoot them, put a hole in the pelt or anything. They were just, they were gone. And uh, we had a nice pelt. And uh, I thought, well, maybe something like that. So I asked him, what's the hole for? And he goes, just, you know, he's an old crusty old coal miner, you know. World War II Navy veteran. He goes, damn squirrel traps. 
I said, what? He goes, the squirrel traps. What you do is you, you take a screw and you screw them to a tree. And then you bait them with peanut butter. And you do that for a couple of days until the peanut butter starts disappearing and they, they, they lose fear of it. Then you go out and you set the trap with peanut butter on it. The squirrel comes, whack, and it doesn't fall on the ground. So like a dog or something doesn't run away with it. And then you got a squirrel to cook. I said, how good did they work? He said, great, for about two years. Because when everybody started doing it, even the squirrels disappeared. If you look at the deer herd population, this is just a depression. This isn't what we're talking about. This isn't the end of the world here, right? The deer herd in Pennsylvania reached an all-time low in the 1930s. I wonder why. I wonder why. You know, Pennsylvania has annual deer hunters over a million people and has a herd that's gotten so so uh, populated today that they've had to keep increasing the amount of deer people can take because even with a million people out hunting for their you know the time that they're allowed to hunt, there's not enough good hunters anymore. I guess they can't even keep the population in check. When I was a kid, you could shoot one deer a year. You had a buck season, a doe season, an archery season. It was either in a muzzleloader season. They were pretty short term, and you got one deer tag a year. Now you can shoot multiple deer. I think you get one buck and multiple does in Pennsylvania. But in the 1930s, there were almost none left. Look at all these animals that hunters brought back. Look at their lowest population in the curve. 1930s. Gee, I wonder why. And you know what? It was World War II. It actually ceased the decline because all of the men that were of the right age to be doing this were sent off to war. The animals got a reprieve. And when we came back and started rebuilding the country, that's when all of the, the, the animal uh, organizations like Ducks Unlimited, it started earlier. They got the buy-in from people and we were able to start caring about habitat again and things like that. So what happens? We don't know. But I don't think my dad was wrong. Half the people are dead very, very quickly. That might be a few weeks to a few months. But most people wouldn't get out. Because everybody's going to turn on each other. And this idea that some idiots in our community have, and I'm talking about the Prepper community here, I don't need no MREs. All I need is my rifle. I'll take what I want. You're an idiot. Not just because you're probably going to get your ass killed almost immediately and you're full of shit in the first place. But because even if you were successful doing it, how long do you think you can go that way before everything runs out for everybody? That's my thoughts on that one. Let's go to some of these, and I don't see a lot of all caps that I missed here. I'm going through without even reading them just to back about 10 minutes, and anything I see with all caps throwing it up there. And... I don't know what that is from Margaret, but we'll talk about it because it might be the guy that I threw out earlier. Let's go to the starred comments. I got eight of them right now. Uh, Marco says, have you been banned from Apple Podcasts? I don't think so. Uh, you probably came in a little bit late and missed that. I know that TSP is not updating an Apple Podcasts. For those that were here at the beginning, I apologize for repeating it, but I'm sure there's people that came in later. Um, my show from Tuesday is up. My show from Wednesday and Thursday is not all the other services is updating. So I know there's nothing wrong with my RSS feed or something like that. I'm on Spotify. I'm Stitcher. I'm on Pocket Cast. I'm on TuneIn. You know, I'm on everything, and everything's updating but Apple. Um, if anybody has any ideas of what I can do to correct that, I'm, I'd love to hear from it. Best way is by email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSBC in the subject line. 
which is the same for all emails to me. Um, but if I was banned, I don't think the last 298 shows would still be in Apple. And there was nothing about either of those shows that would set off any red flags with, you know, censorship or anything like that. Um, there's plenty of shows that I've gone into things like the jab and the COVIDs and stuff, and Apple's never censored me at all. So I'm not sure what's going on there, but I don't think that I was uh, specifically targeted in this instance. I think it's some kind of an error. Uh, Dick Pronekini, Alone in the Wilderness. So Jay's talking about when I talk about the guy that it's an amazing documentary. It's totally worth watching. Uh, it's shot on old school film. And it's just this guy that lived in Alaska on his own for almost ever. And he went in with like the head of the hammer, the head of the axe. And like the first thing he did was build the handles for the tools. And he, he constantly says something like, well, that's good enough for me. And he fished and he hunted and he lived in this cabin. I think he went and he felled all the trees one season and let them season over the winter and into the next spring. And then he went in and built a cabin. And it's now today, it's like, It's like a national landmark or something. You can go visit it if you can get out there because it is out in the middle of nowhere, but it is fantastic. Um, Morganhead says, notice YouTube is auto-subscribing channels to accounts now. So apparently YouTube is deciding that you want to subscribe to somebody's channel and subscribing you to it, whether you ask for them to do it or not. I am not surprised. Uh, I'm sure some of them are going to tell you things like why we need to be involved in wars and why you need to go get a medical treatment you may not want. Uh, I would say if you're listening to this, watching this now or in the future, and you have not subscribed, hit that subscribe button and hit the little bell so you get updates because I am at least partially shadow banned on YouTube. I'm sure of that. We've checked into it. Uh, Lily Farm Foods says, check out the Beef, in Beef Initiative. It's a cool project bringing Bitcoiners to regenerative farms in Texas. I will check into that more. I heard about that from somebody recently. Oh, Adam Curry. Uh, during my interview with Adam Curry, he mentioned that project. I think it's a great thing. I think anything that puts people together with farmers and ranchers in a direct relationship is good. If it's with Bitcoin, so much the better. I don't really care, though, if you buy a thing with Bitcoin or not. I think it's great when you do. However, Bitcoin to me is digital property. So right now, you know, a lot of people want to get get their paycheck in Bitcoin. I, I, I don't know that you need to do that. You're creating a you're going to have a certain amount of spend every month and you're creating kind of a tax consequence and all. I would prefer to get paid mostly in dollars and partially in Bitcoin. And that's why I love the Strike app. You can sign up with the Strike app. There'll be a link in today's episode notes um, where you can you, if you use my link, we get like five bucks or ten bucks when somebody signs up. I don't remember which one it is. And um, you once you set your account up and then you can fill out a direct deposit form for strike. And instead of saying, I want all my money to go to strike, you can let 95 or 96 or 98 percent of your uh, paycheck go to your existing bank and pay your bills with it or buy your food with it or whatever. And two percent will go into strike and immediately convert to Bitcoin or whatever ratio you, you, you set up. So to me, that's kind of two different things. Let's put farmers and, and consumers directly together. Yes, if we can add cryptocurrency, icing on the cake. Uh, Mike V says, John Dowie has a specific egg washing method. That's because John Dowie worked in the restaurant industry for 20 years. And John Dowie is very, very anal about how he touches all food because he's using restaurant practices. If you and, and you know what John does, it's pretty much the same thing we do. 
honestly. It's not much different because he's been here and we watched him do it. He worries about it a little more, but it's pretty much the same thing. Uh, Diesel Defect says, do you sell by just word of mouth or by advertising? Yes. <laughs> um, we actually need, we, we really have a huge surge of eggs coming and we need to turn a little marketing back on. We've done really well selling on Craigslist. But let me tell you what we don't do on Craigslist. We have eggs. Call us $8 a dozen or $10 a dozen, whatever we're selling for at the time. No. We write a very descriptive ad of our practices, of the fact that we're not just free range. We're soy free and we're corn free on our feed. Uh, we use an all net. We even say who we buy our feed from. And we say, you know, like things like I have a, a whole playlist on YouTube called Duck Chronicles. And I have a domain name, duckchronicles.com, and all it does is redirect there. And it shows how we take care of the birds from babies to adults. People watch it with their kids. There's no F-bombs in it. Like, that's one of my pure rated G things that I kept that way on purpose so it could be that. And we even say in our ad, if you want to see how we take care of our ducks, go to duckchronicles.com. And then there is no question who you're going to buy your eggs from. We have people that drive 45 minutes to an hour to get our eggs. But we're selling eggs from ducks, and that already puts us in a niche. We already have people that are looking for that and can't find it, and then they're looking for the if that person that's in that mindset's already asking for the best product they can get. We have a website, nine mile farm. We have a eight hundred number that's it ends in farm, so we look like a professional operation, and that makes the advertising effective. Advertising without the effective funnel is just pissing money away. So, quick answer on that. Water glass sodium silicate for dipping eggs. Again, I don't use anything but warm water and a stiff brush, period. Uh, and then Margaret said, all one, no reason to be insulting. And I think that was the person I put in a time out. If not, if I put you in a time out and you weren't that person and I'm wrong for it, I'm sorry. But this is something I'll say. I am not going to ever let people in my live stream be dicks to each other in the chat. And if you're, if you get a warning, you got a warning because I wasn't a hundred percent sure. Okay. So I didn't want to ban you permanently and be wrong or because I was being kind to you at the moment. Okay. Like we are part of a community here and we do not. You, we do not need to be talking shit to each other. There's enough people talking shit about us every day. There's a few more here I'll hit, and then I got to go because, like I said, I got wife and husband day planned. Uh, the Hammer says, have you done uh, things I was wrong about episode? I haven't, and not because I'm not willing to admit when I'm wrong. I usually, as I'm wrong, say I was wrong, and here's why. So going back and reiterating all the places I was wrong is really not that advantageous. I have even at times made fun of myself and I have done things like um, played sound effects. Like it, you hear my own voice come in and it's kind of like echoed in some little things on it goes, Jack was wrong. And then you hear dun, 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 and I'll go through it. I'm not afraid to be wrong. I literally have a disclaimer that says I have the right to be wrong on my website. So it's not that I, I don't want to admit it. It's that unlike traditional media, I'm like, yeah, I got this wrong. Here's why. Or it looks like I was wrong. Here's the part I was wrong about, but here's what changed and made that happen, which I think is healthy for us always to do with each other. Jonathan Camp says, what was the first thing you did at your homestead? 
I made mistakes if you mean this one here. Actually, the first thing I did is we had these huge 25-foot-long, 4-foot-wide um, raised beds that the previous family put together. They were cinder blocks, and then on top of the cinder blocks, there was um, railroad ties leaching creosote into the soil. And the first thing I did was rip them out, and then I built the hoogles, if you've ever seen in my some of my videos, the little low hoogles that – uh, have like an orchard in them now, the one that has the little arch over it. Not the garden with the arch, but the little orchard with the arch. That was the first thing I did. The second thing I did was I built the steel uh, tank ponds. So the two round ones, not the other three that tie into them, the ovals, if you've seen those. But I have two six-foot round, two-foot deep uh, galvanized ponds. And at that time, all they did was the lower one pumped to the upper one, and it went back down. And I started my journey into aquatics. And I would say other than the livestock, aquatics, which is also kind of livestock because fish, is the most productive thing that I've done here. And that's why I'm building the aquatics course. And Margaret Oliver says, it was that person. Well, if they come back and do it again, they can go away forever because we don't need people being dicks to each other, Margaret. Sorry you had that experience. Uh, Sarah Gardner says, water glassing is a long-term preservation method for the eggs. Okay, so great, fine. We have kept eggs two months. I don't know that you need to keep an egg longer than two months. When we have surplus eggs, what we do is we crack them, we lightly scramble them, we pour them in Ziploc bags, and we freeze them because we have high seasons and low seasons. So if we have eggs we can't sell, we save them for the future. Since we do a really large workshop, and we burn through about 120 eggs of breakfast at our workshop, um, we'll do like 40 eggs to a bag and we lay them in a, like a tin pan, like a, a small disposable aluminum pans. That way they stay in a nice shape. We put them in the freezer till they're frozen. We take that Ziploc bag, crack a little tiny crack in it, put it inside a freezer, uh, uh, a vacuum seal bag, vacuum seal that and label that. And then we have eggs for our fall workshop. So we can save 240 eggs a year just for that, and it makes sense. And that's probably the most expensive egg I've ever sold because we're selling it to a workshop that's $600 a person. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense for us to do that way. Uh, Nicole Sauce and Jake Robinson and some other people have me really eyeballing um, a freeze dryer, like a middle, middle-sized one. It's over a thousand bucks. It's just, it's the size of a small washing machine. I don't really need another thing, but man, when I see what some of the people are doing with it, and I realize like people are selling things like freeze dried Skittles, which is absolute garbage, but they're selling them and they're selling them for six months on Etsy or eBay or whatever, and they pay for their whole machine and then they stop doing it. Yeah, maybe it's something to teach the grandson how to do. I don't know, man, uh, because I think we could have a real market for freeze dried powdered duck eggs of our quality and they would be shelf stable for years. And so I've looked at that. Uh, I'll look more into water glassing because I'm not poo-pooing it. I'm just, that's not really what we're looking to do here. Uh, what can I do with a yard over septic leach field? I've la answered this hundreds of times, but the reality is as long as what you're growing is not going to get down into it and damage it. So like large trees, large shrubs, large bushes are out. Um, it's really a great, way to grow like your shallower rooted perennials and things like that. I don't, you know, I have a leach field in my backyard and it's wide open because I have enough land 
that I don't really need it. I don't even think about it though. I don't worry about it. I don't worry about like it's going to contaminate something or whatever. And I've had three septic systems in, in my, my life as an adult homeowner, three different homes with septics. And it's just never really been something that I've worried about much or had any problems with. Not all cast, but Xavier Hawk is in the house. He says, yo, I say yo back X. Uh, glad you're here. I'm going to do one more and I got to go. George says cheap way to get materials for raised beds. Well, this used to be really easy. It used to be what you would do is you would just go to construction sites and look at their scrap wood pile and use whatever they threw in the scrap wood pile. Lumber's gotten so expensive, I don't know that that's doable anymore. Um, but probably the cheapest raised bed material is actually uh, like the the the, uh, the metal, like the like metal roofing is made out of and, and uh, uh, like galvanized uh metal and then you build a wood frame and you insert that metal and there's a lot of that shit laying around in scrap and if you if you look up like you know galvanized beds metal beds things like that on youtube you'll see exactly what i'm talking about once you know what you're looking for i bet you if you have like a next door and you live in a semi-ruralish area and you say i'm looking for material like this i bet you there's people who would say you can have it if you come get it um old stock tanks a lot of people like once a stock tank has a hole in it They'll give it away, right? So your old galvanized stock tanks are great for that. Um, honestly, the, 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 the really, they, sometimes they call them bottomless stock tanks, but they're really feeding rings. A lot of those are very inexpensive and they last for damn near ever. But the biggest thing I always tell people when they're talking about building raised beds is first of all, I'll figure out, do you need to, uh, do you need to? Do you need a raised bed? I build raised beds because I have, I have like four inches of soil at the best place on the property and I have ducks that will eat them. Growing up in Pennsylvania, my grandfather would have beat my ass if I would have tried to spend money on fill dirt and boards for a raised bed. We just planted it in the ground. We, we dug our beds every year. I had to go out there with a string and I put it in one end and I ran a straight string to the other to make sure it was straight and we had a thing called an edger. Right. And I went and I cut all the sod that had come in during the early spring. And then I would double dig those beds. You can look up double digging if you don't know what I'm talking about. We plant it into it work great. So, you know, in a lot of ways, there's advantages to not using raised beds. Raised beds get up. That means they dry out faster. So if you're in a really wet area, it's actually good to be in a raised bed. If you're in a really dry climate, being down in the soil, you have more temperature mitigation. Raised beds are not actually optimal for my climate. It's an adaptation to my terrain. So be sure you even need to do that. And real quick, Scott Max says, used commercial roof decking is super tough. So I think what he's talking about there is a product called Trex, and there's probably some other brands around it. It's that roof deck. Uh, uh, no, he, he says roof decking. I was thinking of decking decking, like where they tear a deck out. So I'm not really sure Ah, so demo sites, right? I'm not really sure what he means by roof decking. I'm guessing the sub deck uh, below the roof material. Let me tell you something about that, though. I just heard from my buddy Mark again, and he said that they, like, some of the stuff they use for roof decking is uh, now their, their latest, like, when you're going to get it, if you order it today, is in 2023. I wonder if some of that used decking might get reused, but... <laughs> 
uh, you know, in, in other projects for roofing, but I guess like most of that would not be permitted by safety codes or whatever, because they really care about you. Uh, George says he just wants to save his back and knees. Okay. That's a legitimate reason for raised beds, by the way. Um, my go-to material for raised beds is landscape timbers. And I'm not going to get into it, but I do not worry about uh, my chemicals. I've covered it. It's not worth worrying about it. Get over yourself. I take weed blocker and I go around the inside of the box. That helps the wood last longer. It mitigates that a little bit, but I'm not worried about that. But it also keeps dirt from getting in between your layers. I build them log cabin style. So I got a four foot this way and eight foot this way. This goes on top. And the next one, it overlaps. You can look at my videos and see how I build my raised beds. I considered it very, very cheap to use them to put in, you know, four by eight, four by 12 raised beds. I'm going to be honest. I haven't, I haven't priced landscape timbers in a long time and I'm betting it ain't cheap no more, but get a good, I call it a scrounge eye. I had a friend back in high school. This, this guy, he wasn't the brightest bulb, but he always had a little bit of pocket money. Um, he was the one person, if you ever heard my story about harvesting copper from the abandoned uh, mine shacks, that, that did it too. Uh, but he was really good at just paying attention, like a like another show, American Pickers, like paying attention. And when you see a big pile of shit, <clears throat> as long as you can get to the front door of the house without, you know, getting shot, like if it's fenced in and it says stay out, don't do it. But if it's an approachable place, and if you don't see anybody around and it doesn't look that, you're not that comfortable going up and knocking on the door kind of make a note and kind of drive by once in a while till you see somebody. Hey, hey, um, I'm working on a project. I'm looking for some material. I like to say, no, she have some stuff there. Would you be interested in having any other hauled away to do something useful? Or maybe I can even give you a few bucks for it. I think you would be surprised at what you'll find. And again, next door can be a really dumb website where people argue like miniature Facebook and just simply post when dogs are missing and nothing else. But if you use it actively, I think you'll find that if you say, this is what I'm looking for, a lot of times you'll find resources. I got tons of leaves just by posting on Nextdoor and saying, I use leaves for mulch and composting. You don't have to do anything except when you rake your leaves, put them in bags that have nothing but leaves in them, and let me know. And within a couple days after you put them in bags, I'll come get them. And I said, if you, do, if you, if you have the time and you don't mind doing it, you can bring them to my place. Here's where it is. Throw them over the fence. Just please don't throw garbage. Never had anybody throw garbage. And I found one or two, you know, small pieces of paper or something like everything I got was good. I've gotten, I got a free, I think you're going to do this now with supply shortage. I got a free deep, upright, big ass deep freezer that works better than brand new ones. On next door, somebody painted it black and put some cowboy stickers on it and shit, but I got it for free. All I had to do was go pick it up. Use things like next door, connect locally, scrounge eye, situational awareness. It's good as an exercise anywhere. By being aware of your surroundings, you up your situational awareness, both in reality and in skill set. And it's free. And like some of you have seen the big white tubs that I use in my aquatic system for wicking beds and for like small ponds that overflow into larger ponds. That's how I got them. I didn't do it personally. A friend of mine named Triple used a scrounge eye, saw them. Came, I think he bought like 40 of them and I, he paid a stupid low price for them. And I think I paid him 35 or 40 bucks a piece for him. He brought them to the place and uh, he's good to go. You know, 
just start doing that. Start paying attention to what's around you and pay attention to, to like Craigslist and, and, and next door and stuff too. I've seen things where people have like a whole shitload of scrap wood. Like the one guy had like, like massive piles of scrap wood and he had sold the place and the new buyer didn't want any of it. Some of it was good. Some of it was shit, but he was like, for the next three weeks before I pay somebody to take it away, pull in a truck, pull in a trailer, do whatever you want, take whatever you want. You'll be surprised if you just look around with that, guys. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I will catch you on Monday. We'll probably do another Outback with Jack on Monday. Maybe we'll go to more temporal, time-sensitive things. Or, you know, like what's going on, current events, crap that happens in Ukraine over the weekend. Or we can do something like this again. You guys let me know what you want to do in the comments. I'll check it out, and I will be back with you. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd You don't have to live the way they tell you to Make your own way The others will follow Revolution Revolution